Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Thank you so much, Rizul and Open Globe Talk, for inviting me to be part of your series. My name is Shiku Mathenge, and I'm a professor of ophthalmology from Rwanda, and it's a real pleasure to participate. I was born in Nyeri. Nyeri is a town at the base of Mount Kenya. Mount Kenya is the second highest peak in Africa. It's a very beautiful place. I didn't grow up in Nyeri. My parents um, soon relocated to Nairobi where they were both working and I grew up in Nairobi, went to university in Nairobi. But after university I went to another beautiful town called Nakuru which is famous for Lake Nakuru and it's beautiful flamingos. Lake Nakuru is actually in the middle of the Nakuru National Park which has the big five within 30 minutes from where people live. So I've been very lucky to live in very nice places in Kenya. My interest in ophthalmology started when I went to Nakuru. I worked as a general doctor in Nakuru and then went to Nairobi University and specialized in ophthalmology. My interest in ophthalmology was purely by chance. I got a short posting to the eye unit as a general practitioner and I remember on my first day going to the operation room. As an undergraduate medical student, I didn't like ophthalmology. In fact, sick eyes made me feel nauseous. When I went to work in Akuru as a general medical officer, after some time, I was appointed the head of the private wing of this public hospital. That was a really good job to have. Private wing was smaller, cleaner, and generally better organized. So it was where everybody aspired to be. After heading that department for just over a year, I needed to go on leave and quite an extended leave. And the head of the hospital the main hospital asked me who I would recommend as a replacement for the duration of my annual leave. And I chose one of my very good friends. However, when I returned from leave, she wouldn't budge and she refused to leave the post and go back to her old posting. And I just didn't have the energy to fight with her. So I asked the hospital to give me another posting. And my boss was pretty sympathetic with the situation and he said, you know what, you've worked hard enough, let's give you a break, go to the eye unit. And the eye unit was really a break for a general medical practitioner because they employed mid-level workers and they employed ophthalmologists and nobody else. So as a GP there, I really would have nothing to do. However, I reported to work every day and I remember during my first week, 
experiencing having a clinic of about 20 people who'd come in for surgery, most of them blind in both eyes, joining the ophthalmologist in the OR the next day, and on the third day, experiencing the joy that they had when the patches were removed from the eyes and they could see. It was like nothing I had experienced as a doctor, and it really influenced my decision to go into ophthalmology. But the other reason I went into ophthalmology was that it was at that time a very unpopular specialty in the country. It really is still quite unpopular in Africa. And therefore that meant that the entry exam was one of the simplest. And I just felt like I didn't want to struggle too hard to get into pediatrics, which was my other interest, or general surgery, which was something I really enjoyed. I felt ophthalmology would be something I could get without much effort, but that it would also help me to combine my interests of surgery with just also being a medical practitioner. I moved from Kenya to Rwanda because my husband is from Rwanda. It was quite a momentous move for me and not one that, for example, my parents really agreed with. My first job in Rwanda was at the university where I was asked to head the Department of Ophthalmology. This was simultaneously with uh, writing up my PhD. It was a completely different environment for me to work in. It was my first time being full-time in academia and it was not easy at the beginning. However, it is a job I came to love and it really sparked my interest in being an educator. Uh, how is Kenya different from Rwanda? Uh, first of all, let me say that I feel really blessed to have links to those uh, two countries in particular. Kenya is a magical country. I am so lucky to have been educated in Kenya. We have a really good education system. And indeed, an educated majority is one key strength that has built Kenya's economy to where it is today. But Kenya is also a land of many resources from agriculture to wildlife and tourism, natural resources from mountains to beaches to lakes, and of course the Great Rift Valley. Nothing beats Kenyan tea or Kenyan coffee or Kenyan flowers. Kenya is a buzzing country that's made up of over 40 different tribes speaking different languages. But I've learned over the years to love each other and also to iron out issues when they need to without destroying the country. We are the home of M-Pesa, the amazing mobile money transfer platform, and home to two United Nations headquarters, that's UNEP and UN Habitat. We do get let down by our politics, I have to say, and lack of good governance. But Kenyans are hardworking, resilient, innovative people, and they keep going despite the bad politics. Rwanda is a much smaller landlocked country with only one local language, which is amazing for an African country. Despite that, we all know the history of genocide in Rwanda. So today I live in a Rwanda that has transformed greatly since then to become my favorite country in the world. It is the cleanest country in Africa, the most secure, one with exemplary leadership and governance structures. Things really do work here. When Rwanda chose to sponsor a British football club, their world went ballistic. Within a year though, this innovative investment 
had resulted in major increase in tourism numbers to Rwanda and it led to a, a French club entering into a similar deal. So Rwanda invites innovation and new ideas. The conservation effort to save the mountain gorillas has been so successful in Rwanda that it has encouraged the other two countries that share the park to also up their game. Rwanda is also doing its best to invest in better education for its young people. That will make a big difference and especially that most Rwandans speak both English and French as well as their local language. Uh, having both languages is a real advantage out there in the workforce. I think that will open up many doors for Rwandans and help them strengthen the economy of the country. You asked me about challenges to IK in Rwanda. I would actually like to start by talking about the unique positives that I noticed when I first moved to Rwanda. In most places in Africa, access to IK is hampered by three things, I would say. One is the geographic access or the distance to eye services. The second is the cost of services. And uh, the third is the lack of appropriate health personnel to tackle some eye conditions. So the first thing I noticed is how Rwanda has tried to tackle the first two barriers, distance to services and the cost. Rwandans enjoy universal health insurance coverage. So this means that they can visit any government health facility without worrying about cost as a barrier. Cataract surgery, glaucoma surgery, cornea transplants, all are covered. The only condition is that you follow the referral pathway the right way. And to ensure services are not overloaded at any level, Rwanda actually became the first country in Africa to roll out primary eye care training to all nurses in all the more than 500 primary level facilities in the country. This made a basic eye test with treatments for basic conditions like conjunctivitis and first aid for others like for trauma cases available within five kilometers of everyone's home. So what they cannot handle, they refer to the secondary level where highly trained ophthalmic technicians are available. And they in turn can refer to a tertiary level when the patient needs care by an ophthalmologist. So it means they have tackled geography, they have tackled cost. So what are the barriers that remain in equity in eye care? And the number one barrier is that we do not have enough ophthalmologists in Rwanda. And you need an ophthalmologist to tackle the leading cause of blindness here, which is cataract. Currently, each one of the 16 ophthalmologists has been trained outside the country and they return home with very varied skills levels with many needing further training, for example, to bring their surgical skills for cataract to the required level. At least we expect that as a minimum. So this shortage of specialists means that most specialized treatments are only available at the tertiary level. We would like them to be at the district level as that is more accessible to the disadvantaged. It is difficult for, let's say, an old blind woman to travel far from her home for care. She will need an escort and that escort will probably be someone who loses his daily wage while looking after his old mother or grandmother in hospital. So in order to help break this barrier, we started our residency training for ophthalmologist a few years ago and this was really just a calling that my husband and I felt we had. It's not easy to run a training program as two individuals 
The start was really difficult, but those who knew us well and who trusted us began supporting us. The biggest support actually came from the Ministry of Health in Rwanda. I'm happy to say that in the next two years, my institution, the Rwanda International Institute of Ophthalmology, or RIO, will add eight new ophthalmologists to the health system. That's a 50% increase. And we train not just for Rwanda, but we have doctors from Congo, Burundi, and Kenya in training. We are extremely grateful to the partners that have supported us along the way. Fred Olos Foundation, Ophthalmology Foundation, Himalayan Cataract Project, CBM, Leonardo Del Vecchio Foundation, Wills Eye Hospital, C International, and many others who have supported us with scholarships or with faculty or with equipment to support our training. Another area of focus while I was in Nakuru Eye Clinic was research. We are not so good at uh, identifying opportunities for research or engaging in research on our continent, but I wanted Nakuru to be a focus for research. The first rapid assessment of avoidable blindness, or RAB, was actually done in Nakuru. And you know that since then, hundreds have been done in many countries across the globe. Nakuru was also the site where I did a large study looking at retinal diseases in African eyes, something that was previously kind of unknown. I engaged the entire team in these research projects, and research then became something that was not scaring or something intimidating, and people started enjoying it and seeing the value of research. So, may I have been involved with NGOs like Fred Hollers and Orbis for several years. I think I already mentioned how lucky I was to be part of the Fred Hollers microsurgery training program, literally in my first week practicing as an ophthalmologist. This project, in my experience, remains one that I would vote for as something that changed ophthalmology in Africa forever. At a time when many believed strongly that some technologies were too difficult or too expensive for ophthalmologists in Africa to have, Fred Hollows busted that myth and put in the resources to give us the skills and the tools that opened so many doors for us. Even though the project was for cataract surgery, having a surgical microscope and good surgical instruments made all other surgeries possible. When that project ended, um, Fred Hollows decided to create longer lasting programs in East Africa and I was asked to guide that process. One thing I have always said to NGOs wanting to recruit me is that my first priority in eye care is to be a practicing ophthalmologist. I have therefore only worked on part-time basis with Fred Hollers. I believe being an integral part of the eye care teams on the ground makes me a better advisor for the international NGO. So we set up our Fred Hollers Foundation office in Kenya, growing from a one project outfit to now what it is. It's one of the largest programs globally for Fred Hollers and it has its own standalone governance with its own board. From Kenya, we expanded to Rwanda and to Burundi. In the region, Fred Hollers Foundation has moved from being known as a small Australian NGO to one of the top NGOs in IKEA globally. I was lucky to be part of that growth with the foundation. After 15 years, I thought it was time to exit, um, but Fred Hollers was kind enough to ask me to serve on the Kenyan Board of Directors, which I do. So after leaving Fred Hollers, I joined Orbis International, which is headquartered in New York. 
again i opted to join on a part-time basis so i could continue working as an ophthalmologist in rwanda i was drawn to orbis by its focus on education and technology two of my biggest loves orbis investment in uh, learning platforms like cybersite and what i see as some fearlessness in embracing new technologies mean that it is an organization that leads in innovation and is determined to improve the quality of ophthalmology training and also of how ophthalmology interventions are delivered. So in Orbis, I found a space where my ideas are welcomed and nurtured. I'm really proud of working with Orbis to continually train and improve the CyberSight AI platform, for example. I would like CyberSight to be the go-to platform for ophthalmologists in training. I am biased, of course, but I am truly amazed by the wealth of material and courses that CyberSight holds. It has been such a resource for me as a trainer at Rio. So you want to hear more about Rio, the Rwanda International Institute of Ophthalmology? So my husband and I set up Rio in 2012 as a local not-for-profit with a vision of improving eye care in Rwanda. It was something we wanted for some time as a way of giving back to eye care. We were especially interested in training. So my husband John just happens to be the chief ophthalmologist in Rwanda. Initially, we just used our own resources to do minor projects like cataract outreach surgery, like skills training of existing eye workers, but slowly we were able to use our networks to improve our resource base. And by that, I don't just mean money. We, for example, got partners who donated corneas and we created a special project where John replaces corneas for poor children who have dropped out of school because of a condition called keratoconus, which for some reason is very prevalent in Rwanda. We got commissioned to do research and we carried out a national survey of blindness in Rwanda. We formed a partnership with Dr. Agarwal's Eye Hospital, an Indian uh, network of many hospitals, and thus brought a specialized eye hospital into the country for the first time. Having such a hospital is what gave us the base to allow us to start a training program. And we took in our first residence into 2018. So Rio operates as three units, the School of Ophthalmology, the Community Services Program, and a research center. Among the recent research projects was a school screening project uh, that I found really interesting uh, as we were trialing a methodology that we think will be more sustainable than other methodologies out there. We also, uh, as I said, uh, have been working with Orbis on a diabetic retinopathy screening project using artificial intelligence to look at the impact on whether it can improve uptake of services. So, there's a lot of resources spent on encouraging people with diabetes to have their eyes screened, but not much has been done of knowing what happens after screening. And we think that giving the patients an instant report will increase their uptake of services. That's what the study was about. We are just looking at the results right now. Through our community services, we, are, we also support six district hospitals that have no ophthalmologists, so we go there to perform cataract surgery as an outreach project. So Rio is still a small organization, but we have big dreams. As I said before, we currently have 14 ophthalmologists in training from four different countries. And in a country with such few ophthalmologists, you can imagine that getting faculty is my biggest headache. 
but partners keep supporting us with visiting faculty and i hope to find more partners in that area uh, as the days go on still i had to leave my position at dr agarwal's to focus on running this program because i have to carry on a, a big burden of the training the support of the ministry of health in rwanda has been instrumental in giving us the motivation to continue thank you for your kind words rizul my journey to become a female ophthalmologist has been interesting when i was 6 years old my father put me in what he considered the best school that he could afford it just happened to be a strictly muslim school that was actually positioned between a mosque and a cricket field not only was i non muslim but i was also one of only about 5% black people in the school i always consider my experience in that school as my best experience of education in school and i say that besides having gone to the top girls high school in kenya gone to nairobi university which is a great institution gone to ucl and london school of hygiene and tropical medicine my experience at this muslim school still beats them all but it was also an experience that came with terrible discrimination and pure cruelty believe me kids can be totally cruel i was from a different race different religion different social economic class that's the ideal combination for all things discrimination why i don't focus on that bit of the school experience is because in my simplicity and naivety i just kind of just got on with it in any case that is what my father expected i worked hard to become the best student in everything academic as a regular speaker on the school's debate team i was a sports captain i learned urdu i lasted i fasted um, during ramadan and became comfortable with praying five times a day as others did i can still recite uh, several sections of the quran so slowly the other children saw me as one of them and i made lifelong friends living that school was really very difficult so in subsequent experiences on my journey towards becoming an ophthalmology whether it was being harassed by for joining my residency program 7 months pregnant whether it was being shunned by patients who thought i was too young to be a real doctor or who asked to be referred to the specialist and not to me because they couldn't believe i was the, the one they'd been referred to or experiencing friction from my colleagues for being a better educated foreigner in Rwanda or being ignored in international meetings because I'm a black woman from Africa I guess I just got on with it I kept my eyes on my own goals and didn't allow myself to be distracted by the biases that people have because honestly I also have my biases I tried also not to play the pregnancy card or the female card and which sometimes people used to do less than their male colleagues i just worked harder than them because i needed to i traveled with my babies when it was difficult to leave them behind and basically i tried to not ever feel like a victim because of my race or my gender i guess my advice to young female doctors would be to be clear on where you want to go block out distractions stereotypes and compete only with yourself how did i get 
into research. I don't think anyone, anyone has ever asked me that. Um, so my first research project was at the University of Nairobi, and I looked at the ocular complications in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. For me, it was an academic exercise to get my master's in medicine degree in ophthalmology. And I was really not at all interested in the research aspect of my training. I just wanted to learn the clinical skills. A few years after I started working in Nakuru Eye Unit, Sight Savers did an evaluation of their projects in Kenya. They liked what they saw in Nakuru, and more important to them, apparently in all the eye units that they visited, I was the only one they found on duty each and every time on their surprise visits. As a result, I was awarded a scholarship by them to go study at the International Center for Eye Health, which at that time was at the University College London, for a program that was then called a Master's in Community Eye Health. Today it's called the Public Health in Ophthalmology Master's. I actually did not accept the scholarship the first year because I felt my children were too young, but I took it the following year. I was not really excited about going back to school, but I was really excited about spending a year in London. That course changed my life and my attitude to research. I was so amazed by all the excellent teachers who came to teach us on that course. I was awed by the new skills we were learning, whether it was computer skills or how to use data. I could hardly wait to start my research project. The lessons around how research was used to change things, I just found those so fascinating. So I chose a topic that really was based on a topic that, on, on a clinical experience that bothered me at that time. At the Nakuru Eye Clinic, I received a lot of prisoners who are going blind. And when I told my supervisor, the amazing Professor Alan Foster, who is a person I admire greatly and consider a mentor and role model, that what I wanted to do was to study what the reasons why these prisoners were going blind was. He was really worried and, you know, more about whether I would even be given access to the prisoners, but I was determined and he supported me. So I did a case control study looking at vitamin A deficiency in prisoners and their relationship to their eye health and the morbidity in general. The results I found translated to a change in dietary policies for prisons across the country. This project showed me the value of research and I was hooked. I was really grateful to be able to maintain my relationship with ICH and through them Nakuru became the place where the first ever rapid assessment of avoidable blindness, RAB, was ever done. RABS made a difference to data collection in low resource countries. And I mean data collection around causes and magnitude of blindness. So being in a position to perform research, analyze the information, and then see its translation to changes on the ground is so empowering. And the reason that I really like research. It is now time that younger ophthalmologists in Africa take the next step and move from just epidemiological research to basic research and lab-based research to clinical trials. We should be able to test new technologies in Africa, for example. In the past few years, my research interest has been retina. 
For my PhD, I carried out one of the largest epidemiological studies looking at retinal diseases in Africans. I did it because I was curious. We were taught that certain diseases like AMD do not affect Africans as much as other races. My experience in clinic did not reflect this, and I was right. AMD does exist in my part of the world to the same extent as elsewhere. We don't see much interest in such findings globally, perhaps because we do not represent a significant market for pharmaceutical products due to our capacity to pay. But this will change one day. And recently I completed a randomized trial using artificial intelligence for DR. It's a project I enjoyed a lot, especially as the owner of the AI platform was willing to work with me to modify and adjust the platform so that it was appropriate for my population and for my clinical setup. I look forward to publishing those results, but of course it's an uphill battle for research from my part of the world to get published in good journals. But we keep trying and we are also beginning to build up our own journals. My vision for Africa for the next five years is, I think Africa is moving rapidly in the right direction in eye care. And my vision is based on two things, from the demand side of eye care and from the supply side. On the demand side, I look forward to a time when patients will realize that the majority of eye conditions do not need to end up in blindness and a time when they will seek services early enough. For that, we need to invest in massive public information campaigns. And perhaps we should be engaging the media community as we can do that better than we've been doing as ophthalmologists. My second wish is for a well-trained workforce in every country in Africa. That means the entire eye health team, from nurses to optometrists, to cadres that don't exist like orthoptists, to ophthalmologists, and this should be ophthalmologists who can manage patients across all the subspecialties. So we need oculoplastic surgeons, ocular oncologists, the whole spectrum. To do that, we need to have good local training programs. I don't believe that Africans should continue going to India or to other continents for their training. And therefore, we need people who are skilled in medical education. That is my vision for IK in Africa. I'm really proud of being a woman from Africa who has earned a place on the international stage. That's not easy in such a narrow field as ophthalmology is. To have been on the ICO board and the advisory council as the only black woman for almost 10 years, to be a consultant for the World Health Organization, to have been the only woman from sub-Sahara Africa on the 2021 ophthalmology power list of the 100 most influential women in ophthalmology, to have received the IAPB Vision Excellence Award 2020, and now to be on the board of the Ophthalmology Foundation, again as the only black woman. All this make me very proud. But I think my proudest moment will be when my first resident graduates. Training residents as a private enterprise is something I do that I didn't have to do. It has been such hard work and it can be thankless work. 
The JSCI Young Doctor graduate is a competent ophthalmologist full of confidence that they have received good training. I will feel very proud on that day. I would like to thank you, Rizul, for having me as your guest, allowing me to share my thoughts and my history. It's not only an opportunity to inform and share with your audience our reality as ophthalmologists in Africa, but also an opportunity for your listeners to hear that Africa is not about hopelessness, but that it's actually a continent that's changing rapidly and is a continent to watch. It is a real pleasure for me, and I thank you once again. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.